Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. This is the Real Estate Podcast, the intersection between the latest trends in real estate and its impact on our everyday lives. We're your hosts, Alex Norman. And Jamie Blonde, and you've come to the right location. The real estate starts now. In today's episode, Brick, Mortar, and Beyond, we explore the intersection between real estate and the key trends that will be shaping how architects and builders adapt to the future of commerce and work. Today's guest is Mark Landau, partner at Landau and Landau Architects, a third-generation, award-winning architectural interior design and planning firm based in New York. Mark, welcome to the show. Welcome to the show, Mark. How you guys doing? So tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, so as you said, I'm a partner in a third-generation architectural firm uh, founded in 1922 by my grandfather. So we are celebrating our 100-year anniversary this year, which we're very proud of. Um, my current partners are my brother and sister. So uh, we are the third generation of the firm. Work includes healthcare, corporate interiors, um, education, retail, luxury residential, community facilities. Um, I grew up on Long Island. I've been living in New York City for 30 years now since I graduated from the University of Pennsylvania. Uh, and when I'm not working, which seems like never, I, I'm bike riding, I'm golfing, and I'm playing tennis. Nice. <laughs> nice. So Landau and Landau Architects is a family business. So we know exactly how you got into the business, basically you had no choice. But, but tell us a little about what what made you, uh, what got you passionate about the business and what got you interested in, in, in leaning in? Well, no, you're absolutely right that I had no choice because when, when I was in elementary school, when my brother and sister were, my father didn't buy us desks to work, do our homework like most kids. We had drawing boards with T-squares and, and erasers. And so he, he pushed us into the business, but I really took a liking to it in high school. I took architectural classes. And what I liked was that Every project was different. Every client was unique. Everything, even if you were doing the same job, if you did the same job for two different people, they wanted something completely different. So it was, it was always about vision and creativity and design mixed with business. And, and to me, it was the perfect combination of the two, which really drew me to it. So are you one of the few people where the geometry class in high school actually was worthwhile later on in life? <laughs> geometry was the only math that made sense to me and that I did well in. So yes, 100%. I guess if you're going to be an architect, you have to be very good with spatial feet, you know, to be able to see things in three dimensions. I remember I would take these aptitude tests, whether it was at work or at school, and they would show you three cubes. And you have to figure out what the fourth side would look like. I always found that very difficult. So it's funny you say that because in eighth grade, we took a differential aptitude test, which is probably the one you're talking about. And spatial relations was one subject. And my parents got called into the guidance counselor's office. And I thought I did something wrong. And it was because I got the highest score in the state in spatial relations. And they said, your son should be an architect. And my, fa and my father said, well, yeah, I knew that already. <laughs> Tell me something I don't know. Your father said he doesn't have a choice. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't care how he did on the test. It didn't matter to him. So you're a wonder kid uh, from, the very, from the very beginning. That's awesome. Uh, I don't want to say that, maybe, but in one small area, maybe. So fast forward to today, you and your 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 team and working on some really interesting projects. Tell us about um, a few projects that you're most excited about. Yeah, so, so what I love about our practice, and I think we're unique in this, is that we do very large work and very small work and everything in between. So two projects now that are exciting. On the small side, we're doing our fourth project for a bakery in New York, iconic bakery, William Greenberg Desserts, 
They're famous for their black and white kick cookies. They've been in business since the 40s. And we've done their Madison Avenue store, expanded it. We did his new store at Hudson Yards. And now we're doing their, uh, their fourth location on the Upper West Side. And, and that, to me, it's getting into how do the cookies look when you put them in the right case with the right lighting? And what's the customer experience when they come into the store? And on the other side of that, we're doing a large project for SUNY Maritime College right under the Throgs Neck Bridge. And it's a science research building that's being built with mass timber construction, which means that trees are harvested at the perfect time to, to um, at the peak of their carbon sequestration. And it's an all electric building. And we're talking to, to them about how the, the students there research marine water and, and, and take the river water in and study it and send it back out. So, so it's a two opposite end of the spectrum, one very small scale, one larger scale. That's, that's to me what I love about the business. Well, you brought up a great point when you mentioned the bakery, which is how the customer visualizes the product. It reminds me the Fifth Avenue in New York City. I remember when they opened the Apple store, the Cube. I think I think that was the most excited. Everybody wanted to go into the cube just at least once. And then years later, Uniqlo opened up on Fifth Avenue and you had yep. that gorgeous escalator that I'd never seen before. And when you walk in and right away, they send you right up to like the third floor and, and all the clothing around. And I realized how important that whole, that architect's vision is to the business itself, the success of the business. Which brings me to the question, which is, I mean, I, I've had architects. I, I, I bought, I own an apartment. I bought an apartment, had an architect. I've dealt with architects. Sometimes it's hard to articulate exactly what it is you're looking for. And the architect has to almost be, uh, have a sixth sense to, to figure out what it is you're trying to say. Uh, how important is that art to the whole business? I, I think that's what makes architects successful when they can take somebody who has an idea or has something that they want, but can't put it into words. And for us to understand what you're trying to say, what you may not be able to say, and to read people's psyche and how they live or how they work when they can't express it. It's almost like dealing with somebody who can't speak and you have to try to understand what they're saying. Um, and I, I think I think that's what, what makes the profession unique is that a lot of people, A, can't read floor plans. If you give them a two-dimensional drawing, they have no idea what they're looking at. Uh, and B, they can't always express what they like, but we always say to clients, show us pictures of something you like. If you saw something, I've had clients take pictures of their TVs when they're watching Better Homes and Gardens or some television show and show it to me and say, I like the feel of that. And so mood boards and experience, I don't care if they show me work of other architects, it tells me what they gravitate to, what they like. And that's, that's really what we do is try to understand what people want. There's no right answer. It's not math where there's one right answer and everything else is wrong. There's many right answers and they're not the same for everybody. You know, you, you mentioned some of the projects that you're working on, you know, from eateries to education. Uh, and, and the center point of that is the human experience. And the human experience changes, uh, I would imagine. Um, and some things also stay the same. And I know we were, we're talking today about the future and where, where architects and builders are thinking about how space is transformed to accommodate the shifting human experience. What would you say would be one of the things that have come out in some of your recent projects that are just different now than they used to be? Well, I, I think to some extent, it goes back to what you were saying, Jamie, about the Apple store and the Apple experience and, and what... Steve Jobs did there and Johnny Ive, who designed the, the, the original stores and, and most of Apple's products, um, is they, for the first time in, in a real 
large scale, try to understand the human experience. What do you see when you walk in the door? What's your line of sight? What's your first encounter? So it's funny that you mentioned uh, the Apple store and how it really doesn't look like a store, right? And I think that when you look back, a lot of things that we know haven't really changed. So hospitals had always looked like hospitals. Apartment buildings looked like apartment buildings. Retail with large parking spaces looked like retail. And that's just the way things are. But you know, now things are changing. It sounds like, right? Of course, the Apple store is a great example of it looking like a cube and looking like a spaceship more than a store. But things like parks look, like, look the same that, that, as they used to. You have the high line, the underline. You know, gyms do not look the same. You have CrossFit in, in garages. So what are the, some of the things that we're starting to see in your world that perhaps are changing because the human experience is changing and the expectations of that match? Yeah, and I think... I think if you if we go back just a, a brief history of architecture, especially in the New York area, but in New York we define architecture in many respects pre-war and post-war. Everybody's always talking about a pre-war building and a post-war building. Prior to World War II, architecture was grand. Spaces were large, ceilings were high. There was interstitial spaces, so when you didn't walk from your living room directly into your bedroom, but there was a hallway there, and. Post-World War II, there was a building boom. There was a tremendous need for housing, tremendous need for offices. And what it became about was cost and efficiency. So instead of having 10-foot ceilings, if we have 8-foot ceilings, we get four more floors on the building. Instead of having hallways, we put the bedrooms right off the living room, and we can squeeze two more apartments on the floor. And the downside of that, obviously, is the spaces were pretty lousy. Um, the ceilings were low. The rooms were small. And whether it was homes or offices, that, that's what we were, we, we were living with, and they were ugly white brick buildings because white brick was cheaper than red brick, and all the details and the cornices and the moldings disappeared. Then in the 80s, a group of architects just tried to, to bring back some of that grandeur, some of that detail, architects like Michael Graves, Robert Venturi, and they started to apply those pre-war elements to post-war buildings, but the plans didn't really change. I think the defining time in New York City, and, may, and maybe it spread throughout, was late 90s, early 2000s. Richard Meyer, one of the foremost modern architects of our time, did his first building in New York. He had done some interiors, but his first ground-up building on Perry Street in the West Village. Two beautiful glass buildings. and Over the West Side uh, Highway. I remember when those the, were built. Exactly right. Over the West Side Highway, high ceilings, very modern, co finished concrete and what the developer who built it found is he was selling the spaces for $3,000 a square foot instead of $1,500 a square foot. And there was this realization among developers that if we spend a little more for the architecture, and a little more for the building, we can make a tremendous amount more when we sell it. And all of a sudden, and you talked about the High Line, you look at the buildings around the High Line now, they're magnificent examples of modern architecture done by world-renowned architects because people realize that if we spend a little bit more, we get a lot more and the spaces that we get are so much nicer and people want them and they're willing to spend money. And that translates to office buildings. If you look at one Vanderbilt that was just built, if you look at one Bryant Park, these are more energy efficient buildings. They're column free buildings. They're floor to ceiling glass. The lobbies are four five, six stories high. And suddenly we have spaces that we want to live in, spaces that we want to work in and experiences that we want. The High Line certainly was a phenomenal vision, a community vision. The community wanted to do something with this, these train tracks. 
The city wanted to tear it down because that seemed like the easy and obvious thing to do. And it was the perfect merger of community activists and a mayor who was very progressive, Michael Bloomberg, come together. We build a park like we've never seen before that's now a tourist attraction for around the world. And the infra- the, the surrounding areas, the apartments, the offices, the, the restaurants have all grown and a neighborhood has been created because of a park. So let's talk a little bit about what the changes that are going on in our everyday lives. Let's bring up the internet. Alex and I talk a lot about this on our podcast and all the changes to real estate that, that the, that, that life, the life's demands have changed in terms of the physical brick and mortar that we're looking for when we go to a, a shopping center or, or, or retail is now all online. Um, obviously that must change the, the, the dynamic of what people are looking for for different spaces, for different usages. When I think of healthcare, nobody wants to go to an emergency room anymore. If you cut your finger, there's a local clinic next door, or you need a shot of something, you can just go and get it there. It brings it local, it makes it easier to to, to be able to get the healthcare. Th- these are real changes that are happening that have got to be affecting the clients that you deal with. A- absolutely. And, and you're 100% right. The internet started it. And obviously, we've had the internet for 20 some odd years, but it's really the last five to 10 years when Amazon, really the leader of that um, really made the brick and mortar retail store um, no longer necessary. And people, it's ultimately about convenience. It's what people want. So now it's a question for us of taking those empty spaces, which were empty for a while, and what can we do with it? And what we're seeing is a sp- experiential retail, whether it's the city MDs, and I agree with you, I, if, if I have a cut finger or, or a runny nose, I'd rather go there, walk in, get what I need than wait in a hospital for my doctor. But what we're seeing is, therapy spaces, IV infusion, pet care, um, piercings, cryotherapy, all of these experiential um, retail that you can't get online. And that's what we're doing to redesign those spaces to accommodate this. And even gyms, it used to be you joined one, uh, there were three gyms in the city and you joined them and they were just big, massive places. And now you have these boutique gyms, whether it's CrossFit, whether it's SoulCycle that are specific to a certain kind of training. And they're taking over the retail spaces. They're taking over industrial spaces. And that for us provides tremendous opportunity as architects to reimagine something that was built for one use and use it for something completely different. Right. So what you're talking about here is just better experiences all around, right? I think you started by, by, Right, elaborating on better quality experiences, and thus uh, you can charge more for it. Better quality experiences uh, in parks, and so you, you can get you engage more people with it. And then we're talking about better quality experiences in retail, and thus you can, in fact, get more boutique, get more one to one specialized, and then ultimately charge a lot for it. I mean, the a CrossFit annual or monthly membership is a lot more than planet fitness right mm-hmm. <laughs> and they don't serve this so <laughs> so so it, it it tells me that there's a trend that you're that you're leading into which is not that old and not that young either about just better experience all around and those experiences that you cannot get through the internet are what matters so what are the things outside of experiences, or maybe it's maybe experiences buckets it all together. I'm not sure. What are those, those things that we mentioned medical medicine, we mentioned uh, certain types of, of athletic uh, environments. What are some of the, the trends that we see that are driving people to, to demand and or create better experiences? 
Well, I think like if you talk about medical and healthcare, and we do a lot of work in nursing homes and assisted livings, there it's about resident or patient-centered care. So it used to be about warehousing people in nursing homes or putting as many people in hospital beds and one patient got the bathroom and one patient got the window with a lousy cubicle curtain. Now it's about private rooms. It's about dignity. It's about the fact that we need to care for people and people are important and we're not going to warehouse them. And that's really changed the entire healthcare landscape. The work that we're doing now is all about patient-centered care. It's all about privacy. It's all about dignity. When you talk about restaurants and the restaurant experience so it used to be if you wanted to order food you you could order pizza or chinese food and that was what that's what you would get now you can get the same quality entrees and appetizers delivered to you by doordash or uber eats and so the restaurants first of all they're benefiting from that but they're also now have to if you want to draw people into that restaurant you need to create an experience for them because if they can get the same food at home why are they going to go out to a restaurant and the restaurants now, there's more themes. I went to a restaurant the other night and they brought me a cocktail and the guy came and he lit the cinnamon stick on fire because that created a certain essence that made the drink taste better. Well, when you say restaurants, right away, I think of COVID. And when I think of COVID and restaurants in New York City, I think of all these sheds that were have been put up on the sidewalks. And now there's a big debate between are the sheds ugly? Are they bringing rats? Are they convenient? Do we want to keep them full time? The restaurants want the extra space. I don't know exactly how. Yeah, I think I think the public is mixed um, in something in a situation like that is that sounds like a great time to bring an architect firm in to try to see if they can solve that situation that would make everybody happy. No, you're you're absolutely right. And and if you look at Europe, outdoor dining in Europe has been that that's the, the cornerstone of Europe. If you walk through Italy, Paris, any city in Italy, there's always dining on the street. New York has always been difficult to get a sidewalk cafe permit was impossible. It was community board hearings, it was liquor control boards, it was a nightmare, which is why you saw so few of them. COVID the only way these restaurants could survive was outdoor dining. The city basically created an emergency program and let anybody do anything. Some of these structures are not safe. They probably wouldn't take a good snowstorm and not fall down. If a car plowed <laughs> into them, you'd be in trouble. Um, and now that would, that would is, ruin dinner. <laughs> that could ruin dinner, yeah, pretty quickly. Um, and what the city just decided, and we're actually, I'm actually part of a company where we're repurposing shipping containers for emergency housing and homeless housing. And one of the things we looked at is using shipping containers for outdoor dining, because you could, they were the right size, they fit in a traffic lane, you could put them in place. And if you needed to remove them, you put them on a trail, you take them away. The city has just put their regulations in place that they're going to keep outdoor dining, but it's not going to be these sheds anymore. It's going to be umbrellas, and it's going to be more of an outdoor European model as opposed to um, what we have now, which is really just about anything somebody could throw up. But for us as architects, that's a tremendous opportunity to make that space unique. It's another area that we can work on. It's also a layering that we can design between the street and the restaurant by something that you pass through and becomes part of that experience that we were talking about before. Yeah, you know, I, I, I hear that, but I also think that there needs to be a bit of an experience consultant, you know, someone that actually can create um, that environment or that someone that knows that, you know what, I'm going to light that, that cinnamon stick on fire because yep. our customer is going to love it. Right. Because, you know, you think about some of the things that, that DoorDash and Uber Eats and those companies disrupt, 
and those and the, the things that that those companies don't disrupt, right? They, if you just want um, um, some wine uh, and you want a, a, a hamburger, uh, you can get a hamburger delivered and you can get a bottle of wine for 40 bucks versus if you want an experience, you get a hamburger and then you get a glass of wine for $20 and then with, you know, with a cinnamon stick on fire, right? It's a, it's a, it's the experience thus that creates a premium uh, price point and makes people in restaurants more money. I think all around better experience is better profit. So, but when you get into things like um, other areas like equipment, I think, you know, when, when Home Depot, for example, they've got a nice bustling e-commerce business, but you got to go into the store and talk to someone to learn how to use a tool, a hammer and a screw. That's fine. But if you've got like a blowtorch or something like that, that you want to, you want to use, you, you kind of want to experience it first and get, and get firsthand um, knowledge. So having experiences that both help you wine and dine and, and entertain yourself over food, but also help educate you on how to use products tactically are also going to be important. Yeah, no, I agree with you. And I think, I think there's two different points there. One, the Home Depot model, I agree with you. It's very hard to buy those things online. And I think that in the Home Depot world, there's not, I mean, there's Home Depot, there's Lowe's, then there's the local hardware stores, the ones that still exist. But what they need to do better and what we as architects need to do better is take that Apple model of customer service of I can find somebody to help me who really knows the product and really knows where the product is in the store and create that experience to enhance that experience and to force people to want or, or to make people want to come into the store. Uh, on the restaurant side, I think people want to get out of their house but if you're going to offer the same food in their house or out of the house, then the experience out of the house needs to make it worthwhile. The movie theater experience is the same thing. We all have big TVs and great sound and streaming services. So why should we go to a movie theater? I went to pre-COVID, the IPIX movie theater down in the seaport, and you sit in this unbelievably comfortable pod, just the two of you, and you get a blanket, the chair reclines, and the bartender or the waitress comes over and takes your drink order. That made me want to go out because somebody had designed an experience. An architect, somebody in, in the in the movie theater business said, we're going to create something that's going to make people want to leave their living room, get off their couch and come and, and pay extra money to see the exact same movie they could see at home, to drink the exact same cocktail they could probably make at home, but we're going to make it worthwhile for them to come. And I think that's what we as architects and, and creative retailers and marketing people, that's, that's what we need to do. That's our job. So- Based on all the things you just said, do restaurants and retail, do they look different than they do now in the future? In the future, I hope so, because I think there's there's certainly problems with them. I think restaurants have made have made good strides. Some have. I mean, there's still the, the local neighborhood Italian place is still that neighborhood Italian place, so we all love it. But I think we also like the places with the cinnamon stick, and, and, and I think those places have changed and have created experiences. Um the, the other retailers, some are doing a phenomenal job of creating experience. And I hope that that coupled with video and lighting technology and, and the, the, the things that exist today that didn't exist five, 10 years ago, um, everything from colored LED lights to sound, the things we can do at a reasonable price is opportunity to create a retail experience that will draw people into the stores. So that, I mean, to, for me, that's the future is using that, leveraging that technology 
to create that experience. You know, I was in, I went to a, uh, a luncheonette uh, this morning, a classic New York diner, right? This, you know, this is, this is a countertop and there's like eight stools next to each other. I'm sitting there rubbing elbows with the guy next to me. And then the, the, the guy who's cooking on the grill, the flames are going. I can feel the heat on my forehead. I'm thinking to myself, geez, this is like way too close for comfort. Um, but also I'm thinking if you just, if you added maybe a foot of space between each guest, I would have, I would feel more comfortable, but at the same time, the restaurant and luncheonette in this case wouldn't make as much money because they wouldn't have enough as much patrons and so forth. So there is a cost benefit to creating great experiences. But of course, then again, if my bill for my bacon, eggs and, and hash browns was above 10 bucks, I think I'll be a little pissed at that. Mm-hmm. I, I do think that people are longing for that experience um, and, and to get back to that that sense of normalcy, both at the diner or in their office, where people are going to be with COVID. And my personal feeling is this will fade away and we're going to head back to pretty close to where we are, um, not where we were, not exactly, but pretty close. But the discussions that we're having and that there really hasn't been any real consensus on is what does an office look like? Are we going to go back to these benching systems where everybody's sitting four feet apart? Some people will say we're going to go back to cubicles. I don't see that happening. Nobody ever enjoyed working in a cubicle and nobody's ever going to enjoy working in a cubicle again. And given remote work and being able to work at home, if given the choice, you're not going to take a job in a cubicle. People want to see each other. They want to talk to each other. Will those desks spread out a little bit? Will we have more community areas? Yeah, I think so. But I think we're going back to where we were more recently than where we were before. And as far as the restaurants and tables apart, what I'm seeing is the tables that were spread apart are starting to move closer and closer together. And the restaurants are starting to fill up more and more. And I don't necessarily see that there's going to be a major paradigm shift in how we design these spaces. I think people are going to put COVID in the past. It's going to be gone. And we're going to go back to doing the things we really enjoyed doing. Well, it's funny. I always say that, you know, we people have a short memory and it's uh, people take things for granted and you go back to your old habits. I, it, it is interesting to hear your thoughts about the uh, about the office space. Uh, you know, you 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 and your family have had a front row seat of the to the evolution of the office space in New York City for a century. Um, Midtown, uh, from what I understand, um, is still a little bit of a loner zone because a lot of people have not come back to the office. The latest data I saw was that only 28% of office workers are back in the office on a regular basis. Uh, so it's interesting that you think that you think that we will go back to the situations where I was working at Lehman Brothers on, in Times Square and 3,000 of us were in the building at the same time? I don't think we're going back to that. What, I, what I'm saying is I don't think the furniture layout is going to change. What's, what's going to happen is that people are going to be given the option to work remotely. So the 3,000 people are never going to be there at the same time. Uh, investment banks and other businesses are going to what's called a hoteling model. So you don't have a set desk anymore. You don't have a set office because nobody has paper anymore. So you don't, and you're working typically on a laptop. So you'll walk into the office and you'll be assigned that day that space, whether it's a private office, whether it's a conference room, whether it's a desk, whether whatever it is. And that's where you'll work that day because you're probably not going to be there every day. And we don't need to pay for real estate for 100% of our employees 100% of the time. And that model I see more than changing the layout. I think it's just there's going to be less people there and people aren't going to have 
the personal stuff that creates the problem. So when you leave at the end of the day, you take everything with you. Maybe it goes in a mobile pedestal or a locker that's stored there in the office. And then the cleaning crew can completely come in and wipe down the office. So the next day, if somebody else is sitting at that desk, they have no concerns that it wasn't clean because there's no personal items left there. I see that as more the future of the office um, rather than the 3,000 people at Lehman Brothers or everybody back in a cubicle. I think the layout stays the same. I think the way people work um, changes. So I'm going to just add to that because I, I know that there's a couple of apps and startups that have um, put, put products out in the market that uh, allow you to book your seats. And so employees, before they go to the office, can select what desk they want to sit at. And if they don't have the desk isn't available that they want to sit at the corner office, they'll opt to not go into the office as a result. Yeah, I mean, th- th- this is very much the soul cycle model where you choose your bike before you take the <laughs> class. It's the airline model where you pick your seat on the app. Um, it's the WeWork model where if you can book a conference room or you can book a desk there, that's the future of offices in my mind. So in that case, uh, which is very funny, by the way, because when I was 12, I went from Montreal, where every kid had their own desk at school, to Brazil, where we all shared desks. I thought it was the weirdest thing. But uh, to finish up that thought, Mark, as we come to the end of the show, uh, if in fact you are correct on your vision of uh, the office space, less people sharing the space, what do you think will happen to the extra space available in those large buildings in Midtown Manhattan? Do you have a thought for repurposing or experiential usage of that space, which will become available? That's a question we ask all the time. And, and I had this discussion somewhat related that the, the rental and the housing market in New York City has never been hotter. There's no product on the market, yet nobody can find anybody to work. There's no employees available. So if the apartments are filled with people, why aren't those people available to work? And my, my feeling to answer your question, Jamie, is that businesses, landlords are creative and we will find a way to fill those spaces and businesses will, new businesses that didn't exist, that don't exist today and didn't exist yesterday will be created so that the empty space will be filled with new companies that don't even exist yet. And I think that's where we're going. Um, most of the, the, the young people working today are doing jobs that didn't exist five, 10 years ago. So there'll be new companies to fill the extra space, in my opinion. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, right? Because there are companies that used to hire 3,000 people in one building, and now instead there are 300 companies <laughs> hiring you know, 10 people. So I think there's a, a little bit of a... Um, in the evolution that's going to happen, whether or not that in, in that ratio uh, it's going to exist, but maybe in some way, shape or form, we'll find, um, which I guess what you're saying is real estate will find a way. I think, I think it always does. And I would never count New York out and New York will figure this out. I'm not worried about that at all. Well, the good news is you're on the front lines. So uh, we hope to see in the future, amazing projects from you and your firm. And I think we've just, scratch the surface in terms of touching on what the future can bring, not only for New York, but the rest of the country, and in fact, the world in the advent of of the internet and technologies that are changing the way that we think about personal space, public space, and the human experience. So thank you very much, Mark, for taking the time to hash it out with us. Yeah, Mark, I want to say as well, thank you very much. Congratulations on you and your family uh, for building a business that has survived and contributed to the 
to the architectural community for so long and uh, look forward to the next hundred years. <laughs> I may not be around. We'll see how I feel. But either way, I'm sure you'll be very successful. But thank you so much for your insight and uh, look forward to seeing what develops in the future. Thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. and I really appreciate you having me. You've been listening to The Real Estate Podcast. Give us a quick review and rating on iTunes. Check out our website at therealestate.co and let us know if there are any new topics you'd like to hear us address. We love hearing your feedback. See you next week. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.